Welcome to Encouraging Change, a podcast that explores the relationship between motivational interviewing and peer recovery support. Your hosts, Laura Saunders and Chris Kelly, will engage in a conversation that combines their professions and passions, the spirit of motivational interviewing, and the power of peer support. Laura is a Wisconsin State Project Manager for the Great Lakes ATTC, MHTTC, and PTTC, and a seasoned motivational interviewing trainer. Chris is a project manager for the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence and an expert on peer recovery support services. So thank you for joining us today and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to episode five of Encouraging Change, personalizing peer support, the uniqueness of the recovery process. What we're going to talk specifically about is what peer specialists and recovery coaches can do in their thoughts and in their actions to bring the concept of personalizing to life in interactions. So Chris, in in preparation for our talk today, I did some reading about this and I, I see that included in this particular competency is the expectation that a peer will understand his or her own personal values and culture and how these may contribute to biases, judgments, and beliefs. And I'm curious, how might a peer go about doing that work? That sounds like really hard work, overcoming your own biases, judgments, beliefs. And it also sounds like it's pretty important. It is hard work. And I don't think we necessarily ever overcome our biases so much as become aware of them. So for me, it's a red flag if anyone, whether it's my personal or professional life, ever comes to me and says I'm a completely unbiased individual. As a peer supporter, ideally, you've gone through some formalized training to become a peer recovery specialist. And within those trainings, oftentimes, there'll be a section um, usually around cultural competency. Um, and with those in, within those sections, we often address values, beliefs, and then biases. So I've taken the implicit bias association test. It's a free online test anybody in the whole world can take. So you can look up the implicit bias test. And I was really taken back by what I discovered. And I've taken it several times since then. And the beauty is it's different every time. I had great trainers that came alongside me because we unpacked the results of that. Because just sitting in my life alone in a room, if I just had to sit with that information, I might feel really ashamed and bad. But I had a really great trainer that unpacked that with me and helped me realize it was a tool for me to become more aware that the lens I see the world through is colored by my beliefs and my judgments and my values. And so when I go to work with a peer, what are we asking person we're working with to set aside in order to walk in our space? Because that can be our physical space, our emotional space, our mental space, things we might do even body language wise. And I would say a lot of people coming who are peer recovery specialists have obviously had the opportunity to, you know, initiate a life in recovery. And I found that that process alone um, had me review my values and my beliefs system because I wanted to engage with the world in a different way. 
Um, so I think there's some formal ways. I think there's some kind of, again, recovery style normative ways that we might review our beliefs and values. And what I really think we could talk about today is how motivational interviewing might be really useful in helping a peer recovery specialist do that. It, absolutely. And it sounds like peer recovery specialists are well primed for this, that, that, the, um, that some of that work gets done in training, that some of that work may have come about as a result of their own personal experiences, that, that the unique uh, role that a peer recovery specialist plays is having been a person who's been through the same situation or a like situation, that that, those, that challenge, that life challenge alone presented a person with the opportunity to, to reassess their own values. So it's not a completely foreign concept. Yeah, so it, from an MI perspective or using an MI lens, this comes down to the importance of what we call as being person-centered rather than self-centered. So when we're self-centered, we're focused on our own values, our own beliefs, our own culture. When we're person-centered, all of that is going outward. I'm, I am, instead of, of bringing my own stuff, I'm again, just a mirror for you. I'm a, a, a clear pool with none of my own stuff in it. And I deliberately check that stuff at the door, accepting that everything I need to know about you, your family, your values, your traditions, your culture, your religion, all of that is gonna come from you. And I just don't make any assumptions about it. I, I know that I have stuff from my own life experience that's very important to me. It's just not important to me in terms of being able to understand or empathize with you. I'm not there to bring my stuff and all my, my values and my judgments. It's for me to be a place for you to explore yours and how that impacts your decision-making about what you wanna do with your life. Are there some tools that people could use from MI for this particular situation or what would you suggest? Yeah, so here's just like, you know, you said like a, a trick or a tool or a short, mm -hmm. you know, like something short. So one thing that people can try, like try it out today, is to just start sentences with you rather than I. Mm -hmm. So rather than me saying, Chris, I think, I reflect on what you've said and said, you're afraid, you're scared, you're excited about this change, you're, mm -hmm. but, but thinking about my saying things about how you're experiencing our conversation, what you're saying, rather than anything that has to do with my opinion, my judgment or my biases. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's right. about you. So yeah, so another step in the peer process that I read about was appreciating and respecting the cultural and spiritual beliefs and practices of peers and their families. And how do you see that taught or how do you see that in practice? The different, you know, cultural or spiritual beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even as, like I've said, I, you know, trained as a peer several years ago and kind of went through a process within an organization and have been fortunate to really just do some deep dives into the kind of the underpinnings and the foundation of peer support. So for me, and what I've seen be helpful for others was what I might call like front porch time. So it's time where I get out of my own community 
and go spend time in other communities. So I'll really seek out and attend community events from cultures I may not be as familiar with. I might even ask other peers in my network, like, well, what's going on out, out in the world in the community and how can I engage with that? I am a pretty avid reader. So a lot of times I will use that method too, just to um, read a book from a different perspective, um, something that I'm interested in learning more about. I'll give you an example. We were doing a, a peer recovery coach training and I was the facilitator and I had two people from the Korean population that were going to be attending my training. And I knew very, very little, if nothing, their culture and their background. So I actually found a local Korean organization and I just attended a three-hour session on their history and customs. And, and it was so helpful. Also helped create a more welcoming environment. And I actually felt more comfortable being curious because I did take some steps to learn some things. And then I could be curious around, oh, is that you know, a part of your tradition, a part of your culture, or is it just part of your family system, or is it just you? That's, I think, just being curious for us is important. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's a, it's a big ask, right? Like, going outside of our comfort zone, going outside of where we, you know, where we were raised, or what we think. I think it's that admission of knowing, or admitting, excuse me, that we don't know what really goes on in another person's life. We don't know what really goes on in their home, how their family interacts, lives, celebrates, mourns, copes. We just don't know. And the only way we can learn that is we can get some hints about it by doing what you did. And then the other thing that we need to do is to just shut off our judgment and allow them to explore that, right? Create a space where a person can hold up or talk about how their values, their beliefs, their practices affect them in whatever behavior change they're trying to make, right? Like this, these things are really big influences to me. These are things that are going to make my behavior change really hard. In, in, with regard to uh, substance use disorders, you know, does the family value honesty? Does the family want to know What's mm -hmm. going on with you? How do they view issues with substances? Is, are there a lot, is there a lot of shame? Or in our, is it a moral issue for mm -hmm. them? What are the family norms around the treatment of physical illnesses? What are the, what's the family norms around mental health issues? Does the family welcome help from outside? Mm -hmm. Or do they yeah. say, eh, no, we're private. We don't, yeah. Right. So. Say a more, um, poignant example that really made me reflect as well on maybe not as poignant examples was, uh, again, I had a member of a um, Somalian community apply and come through a recovery coach academy. And during the training, he was explaining that where he was from, they didn't have a, a term, a way to address substance use disorder. So they acknowledge someone either had a mental health issue or a substance use disorder, but the way the community acknowledged that why is, was by just letting it continue. And then they'd push them off to the side. And so it wouldn't be, it's not quite like sweeping it under the rug because they were identified as having an issue, but they were just pushed kind of off to the side while symptoms of that issue were bubbling up. 
even and so for him what a stretch to come through a, a peer support training where we're like engage and da, 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 and get the community get their family involved and so there were kind of multiple layers there that again is a in my culture we talk about substance use disorders you engage a family network for you know that was my lens so i really had to adjust and think differently with him even throughout the training yeah yeah culture played a big role in in how he viewed the issue and how he viewed people getting well yeah mm -hmm. and he wanted to change that for his culture that he was building here in the twin cities yeah yeah certainly an opportunity to make a big impact so chris it sounds like you know from your experience i know you've had lots of experience in the peer world and i'm wondering if if you have any stories about what you've seen in terms of how family norms or family values or something somebody was taught you know from an early age and how that impacted their recovery or impacted their how they viewed getting better i actually um you just saying that so i can think of two one is really short and yeah. so we had a trainer in our recovery coach academy that would really talk about this and he would always say he was always told well just treat them like family treat them like family that was a big phrase that was thrown at him in his recovery process and he was like i don't want to be treated like family because my family didn't treat me well we didn't treat each other well and so for him that was and so to me that's an example of a common phrase we might just put out there that could mean something really really different and probably does to each and every individual and so if you say treat them like family that might mean something really negative to a person yeah so that's the first kind of just short story and then one that really i feel like was a almost a turning point for how i really provided peer support and the way i kind of thought about what i do is i had been working as a healthcare navigator and one of the places i visited was the salvation army and so I would help the gentlemen in services there enroll for healthcare as a recovery coach. One younger man had come to me and it was when the Affordable Care Act had just started up. So it was, you know, a new changed process. And so I, three times we sat together and got him enrolled because he just wasn't getting any cards in the mail or so I thought. And so each time he'd sit down with me and I'd redo the application and send it in, send it in. And finally, this third time I sat with him while we called the county to say, what's going on? Why isn't his um, application getting accepted? And we got a county worker on the phone and he said, well, I see him here. He's all enrolled for medical assistance. And I said, well, why isn't he getting cards? And he said, well, I see they were sent out on X date, X date, and X date. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay. They're just, you know, something's wrong on our end. And so when we hung up with the county, I was like, so have you gotten these cards? And he just kind of looked at me. I'm like, in the mail? Like, you can get mail here, right? And he's like, oh, yeah, I got a whole stack of it sitting upstairs. And I was like, okay, well, are there any cards in it? And he's, well, I don't, I haven't opened it. And I was like, oh. And then he, because we had worked together for a while, could, you know, kind of explain to me, I've never opened mail in my life. My family didn't open mail. That wasn't a part of the system and that he grew up with. That wasn't a norm where he grew up. And so 
me being his coach, I, I just assumed like everybody opens mail, you get mail, you open it, you do something with it. So it was a big assumption I had made that was granted, these were minor problems, but in the bigger picture, it made me reflect on like, well, what else do I assume when I'm sitting with someone that could actually be a much bigger issue? If I'm just making assumptions that we have the same understanding and lens that we see the world through. Yeah. Something as that you look at as an integral part of your everyday life was something that was something he didn't know anything about. Right. Through no fault of his own. It was just sort of, that was his deal, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what you did there, Chris, you, you listened you got really curious and you came from a place of open-mindedness. And that's what MI would also contribute to this discussion is to remind us how important it is to be open-minded. And that allowed you to then discover that he wasn't opening his mail, right? Mm-hmm. So you were on top of what was going on in your own mind. You were, you were saying like, am I, what are my biases here? Let me question them. And then let me overthink them, right? Like, let me say, oh, wait, I might be, my bias is preventing me from realizing, from looking at this differently. And it's something as, as easy to overcome as the bias that everybody opens their mail, right? Mm-hmm. So in that particular case, what you didn't have to do is you didn't have to say like, well, how is my passion or how is my defense of my own lived experience getting in the way of me seeing that other people have different motivators or different really good ideas about how to recover. Mm -hmm. That was a great example. And then you took that experience from that one example and then started doing it with bigger things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what would be some skills within motivational interviewing that can help us with that? So it's about being super curious. Just like Mm -hmm. you were in that example, Chris, it's about being super curious, listening really deeply, reflecting back on what people are saying more than we're asking them questions, not just barraging people with questions, but reflecting back on what they're saying. And when I ask questions, they're going to be big and open-minded things like say more, explain, tell me more, tell me more about your mail, tell me more about, you know, what's important to you, tell me more about how substance use is viewed in your family. All of that stuff is what MI would tell you to do in order to be, you know, respectful of what they bring. Thank you, Laura. So I guess, I mean, really just to kind of round out the end of our session here, what I heard from you is a lot of it is, again, of course, listening, reflecting, (laughs) and using our own curiosity to evoke those responses from the people that we're sitting with. How do we really tailor unique recovery experiences to the people we're working with? And one of those is by being aware of our biases. Yeah. We will be coming back in episode six, recovery planning. Are we there yet? So hopefully you come back and listen again. This podcast is sponsored by the Great Lakes, HETC, MHTTC, and PTTC, which are funded through cooperative agreements with SAMHSA. The opinions expressed in this recording are those of the speakers and do not represent the official position of SAMHSA or DHHS. Thank you again for joining us on the Encouraging Change podcast. 
If you are a new listener, please follow us on social media. And don't forget to like and subscribe to the Great Lakes Current YouTube channel to access many more free products and resources just like this.